Well, good morning. Let's start off with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we are grateful just to be here in your house again today. Father, we're eagerly expecting what it is that you have for us. God, open our ears, open our hearts to hear it. Father, uh, open our will, our desire to obey it. Father, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior of their life, God, get hold of them today. Block out all distractions from their mind. Father, penetrate their heart with your truth. And God, convict them of their need to know you. It's in your son's name we pray today. Amen. We are continuing this morning with our study in the book of Philippians as we get into Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to turn there with me this morning. We're continuing to look at this idea of joy, this Christian joy that comes through this reckoning or this getting our mind right, our focus right, our perspective right on the fact that a relationship with Jesus Christ and that ultimate goal of seeing the advancement of the kingdom, seeing the gospel spread is what we were created to do, is what we were created for, and that's where we find joy. And when we talk about this abundant life and this joy of the Christian life, that's where it comes. It's through living in His will, doing what we were created to do, and seeing that come to fruition in our lives and in the body of Christ, as we talked about last week, as we can take joy in seeing other people accomplish that goal. And that brings us joy because we are partakers in that fruit. And as the kingdom expands, it's our kingdom. It's it's our home. And as we see that expand, we can find joy in that with others. But... Paul takes a moment to remind the church at Philippi of something and consequently remind us of something here in chapter 3 that could be a deterrent to that joy. So we're going to look beginning in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. We don't know if Paul is referencing a letter that he had written to the church earlier here, or maybe if he's referencing something that he had preached while he was there in their presence and preaching to the church, and teaching in the church on one of his journeys. But whatever the case is, it's important enough that he says it's no trouble for him to bring it back up again. To to remind them again of what it was that he had taught. It's no burden to him. In fact, he says it's a safeguard to them. It's a safeguard to them. When we think of a safeguard, and we think of security, we often think of something, obviously, that's dangerous in in our lives. If someone's going to put up a boundary or a safeguard, they're going to put up a hedge of protection around us, right? We love to throw that phrase around, uh, whatever that is. You know, Satan doesn't have hedge clippers, I guess. I don't know. But as we, as we look at this idea of security in our lives and a safeguard in our life, that means there's something dangerous out there. And so Paul is reminding them of something dangerous that's there and something we're going to look at today, and that's the joy thief. Because if there is joy in Christ... In living according to his will, in accomplishing the one thing that he put us here on this earth to do, if there's joy in that, there is certainly someone out there who is trying to steal our joy by keeping us from accomplishing that. And so Paul's reminding the church at Philippi of this. And we're going to talk today about what this thief is like, what he looks like, and how we thwart this thief. And keep him from stealing the joy that we're supposed to have. And understand, we're not just talking about this idea of being a Christian means everything should be rosy and everything should be happy and bubbly and giggly all the time. That's not at all what joy is, and it's not at all what we've been talking about or what Paul's presented to us. We're talking about this idea of finding true joy in life by accomplishing that thing 
that he gave us to do, that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that we find only in him and only in doing his will. So there's someone there who doesn't want to see us experience that joy. And Paul begins to talk about them. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Paul basically puts out an APB, an all-points bulletin, on this joy thief. And when you talk about an APB, there are certain things, certain bits of information you get, right? If you hear one of these on the news, if they they come in with breaking news and tell everyone to be on the lookout or be on the alert, because in this particular area, there's someone on the loose, someone they're worried about, someone that's a threat, someone that's a threat to your security. And they begin to give as much description as they have, don't they? So not only will you know what they're trying to do, and you can be wary of that, but you can identify who this person is. And so that's exactly what Paul does here in chapter 3 for the church in Philippi. He says, I've talked to you about this person before, but here's this description again. And because I've talked to you about them before, you need to understand, and what this tells us is this thief is still at large. He's not yet been apprehended. He is still a threat to you, and he's still a threat for us. As God chose to preserve this in his word for us today, that means this thief is still at large. And he is still a threat for us. What Paul is about to tell the church at Philippi here in chapter 3 is applicable to our lives as Christians. Because the same thief and the same tactics, the same motivation that he had then is still present today. And So we need to take an understanding of what he was telling them so we can be on guard. Right? This is a safeguard for our lives as well. He says that this thief is a master of disguise. Notice he gave three descriptions of the thief here. And the the last one, he says, they're of the false circumcision. In other words, they're trying to present themselves as something that they are not. And if we're going to recognize this, we need to have an understanding of what these disguises are. And so Paul begins this conversation with the church at Philippi in contrasting who they are and who we are. And pointing out some of the things that we need to be looking out for. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are worshiping in spirit and in truth and our worship is directed at the right thing. And one of the ways that we recognize this thief who comes to steal our joy is the fact that there may be worship But it's not in truth. And it's certainly not directed at the only one who's worthy of our worship. Instead, he says it's directed at something else. And he mentions that. He says, and put no confidence in the flesh. That is the object of their worship. It's the things of this world. The flesh, what the flesh can accomplish, what they can accomplish, what they can do. So we need to be wary as we're looking out for this thief, as we're trying to identify who this thief is in our lives and when he's there and when he's working. We need to be looking for someone who is not directing worship and not trying to direct our worship at Christ alone, but instead is trying to direct our focus and our worship to something or someone else. But Paul speaks of this idea of worshiping in the flesh. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul says, I've been there. I've been in that life. I've been 
that thief. I've been one of those very people that I am talking about right now. And he says, if anyone has any confidence in the flesh, if anyone can boast of what they as a person could do, then I more than anyone could boast. And he begins a dialogue here with the church and contrasting what he was able to do in the flesh and what he's trying to do in the spirit. But he says this. He names this thief, but whatever things were gained to me. See, many times when we get an all-point bulletin, we have a description of a person, but we don't always know the name. We don't always know who we're on the lookout for. Paul gives us a very specific name here. He says, this master of disguise, this, this joy thief that I'm talking about today is things. Things. Now understand, things aren't always material things. They're not always things that we can put our hands on. They're not always the things that money can buy. They're not always the things that we think of when we think of financial value and material wealth. Some of these things are intangible. They're ideas, they're assumptions, they're perspectives that we hold. They're things that shape and mold our life and how we see the world. And Paul says these things, if we're not careful, will steal this joy that we're to have as we focus on Christ and his purpose in our lives. Because these things steal our focus. These things get us looking elsewhere. They draw our attention. They draw our focus. They draw our pursuit. They draw our energy. And they become the very things that steal the joy that he desires for us to have in him. So Paul starts to talk about these things. Remember, he was well acquainted with them. He said, if anyone could boast in things, it's me more than anyone else. As we go back to uh, the first week in this study, if you'll remember, as we talked about the city of Philippi, we said it was a Roman colony. It was removed from the motherland, so to speak, and established outside the, the main boundaries of the empire. Yet people who were born within the city were full Roman citizens. They had full rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. But because they were outside, because they were a colony, they they almost had that middle child syndrome, right? You all know how it is with the middle child, right? They they think the oldest one gets all of the special treatment and all of the privileges when the baby always gets doted on and always gets spoiled and they're always the one who gets left out. When in reality, you know they feel that way, right? So you try to do more for them. And in fact, they're probably getting more special treatment than anyone else, right? But they never see it that way, right? They never see it that way. Their perspective is they're slighted. They're always the one missing out. So that's the way they see everything. And that's the way the the people in Philippi in this colony were, right? It's almost like little man complex in a way. They were outside the main part of the empire. So any news from home, any promotion that anyone in the city got, any title that anyone was bestowed by Rome was a big deal. And so they would erect in the city these stone monuments that basically like a resume of everyone's in the city's accomplishments. Because the more individuals and citizens of the city accomplish, the better it was for the city's reputation. Right? And they're the outlier, so it's all about reputation. It's, it's all about the things they could amass, the titles they could get, the special treatment that they got. And Paul says, okay, we're going to talk about these things that distract us from our focus, these things that steal our joy. 
And he spells out for the church in Philippi these things in a way that they could understand. He offers his resume, which he says would stand far and above all of theirs. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, Paul is beginning here to boast in his pedigree. He says, if any of you all think you were born into the right family, the right place at the right time, with with all of the right social standings and networking already in place, just because of your birth, I, I can boast even more. Because I was born to the nation of Israel, God's elect and chosen people. And as a sign of my commitment and covenant with him and he with me, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And not only that, but I was born into the right tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Benjamin wasn't a large tribe. But the very first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. And because of an agreement and a covenant between David and Jonathan, the tribe of Benjamin stood with David even in Absalom's revolt. So the tribe of Benjamin became a very respected tribe among the twelve. And he says, I was, I was even born of the right tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I didn't miss anything in my pedigree, in my upbringing, in my grooming. But Paul says, if we're not careful, this pedigree is one of those things that can distract us and keep us from joy. Keep us from knowing the joy that comes through living a life that's focused on Christ. Because he says our pedigree can be a distraction. Some of us were born with that silver spoon in our mouth. We were born on the right side of the tracks. We were born to the right family with the right last name, who ran in all of the right social circles, who who our last name alone afforded us every opportunity that we could ever want. But we did nothing to pick that, did we? Just genetics, dumb luck. And yet, God placed us in that family in that situation for a reason. But it wasn't for our doing. And it wasn't so we could boast in that pedigree. It was to afford us opportunities that other people wouldn't have because he intended to use us in those situations where other people were going to be used in other situations. So Paul said we can't boast in our pedigree. But you know what? We also can't look at our pedigree and shame either. Some of us weren't born on the right side of the tracks. Some of us weren't born with a wooden spoon in our mouth, let alone a silver spoon. Some of us, family, you you don't want to mention your last name because it's notorious where you're from. When people hear your last name and know whose son you are, all they can think of is, oh, his daddy was the biggest drunk in town. Oh, his mama? Yeah, well, he may not even really be his daddy's. See, this pedigree, what, what we're growing up with, This baggage that we carry just because of who we are and how we were born and the situation that we were born into also can't be a distraction. But if we're not careful, this joy thief will use that. You can't be anybody. You were born in a bunch of nobodies. Nobody in your family was ever anybody. Nobody from your little old state ever accomplished anything. You all just wind up back there again, just a bunch of hillbillies. That's where you're going to live out your days. Right? He can start taking this idea of our pedigree and who we were born to be and basically say, your destiny was determined in your pedigree before you were ever born. And you know what? He's right. 
but not in the way he leads you to believe. God had planned for you the works that he wanted you to accomplish for his kingdom before you were ever born, but it has nothing to do with your pedigree and has everything to do with the one who created you to be exactly who he needed you to be. And Paul says we can't get caught up in our pedigree because if we do, one way or the other, whether we think too much of ourselves or we think nothing of ourselves, he says we're not thinking right if we're focused on our pedigree. We have the wrong perspective. Paul says, I could boast in my pedigree, but I could also boast because as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul was a young man in the leading religious body in Israel who had excelled to the top, far beyond those who had more age and experience and wisdom than him. He had done everything right. He was a rising star as far as Israel was concerned. And yet Paul says, I can't boast in my performance. And we can't either. Any ability, any giftedness, any talent, anything that we have is not even ours. It was given to us by God. And we can work and we can practice and we can hone that and we can sharpen that and we can understand better how to use it. But even still, Paul says, if we let it, that will be a joy thief. Because if we are so focused on what I do and my performance and what I achieve and the titles I have and the salary that I have and the car that I have and the wife that I have and the family that I have and the education that I have and all these things that I have and that I've accomplished, he says, we miss the joy. Because we're not focused on the one who can bring joy, true joy. And when we find our joy in performance, the only way it's not even really joy is it is just happiness satisfaction, accomplishment, fulfillment. When we find those things in our performance, what happens whenever our performance is subpar? What happens when suddenly we can't? Or worse yet, what happens whenever we're that person who it seems like we never can and we never have, and as far as we're concerned, we never will? Instead of the Midas touch, we've got that black touch. And it seems like everything we attempt, every big idea that we have, every endeavor that we've ever had in our lives has failed somehow miserably. Every relationship we're in is always worse by the time we're done with it. It's like we self-destruct everything in our lives. See, if he can't get us focused on our good performance and what we achieve and get us distracted there, this joy thief gets us focused on all the ways that we fail. Because as we take our eyes off the prize and start focusing on our failures... There is no joy. We let our identity and our self-worth get caught up in all of these things. And that becomes who we are. And he says, if we're not careful, we let our performance steal our joy. See, our performance has nothing to do with who we are in Christ. What we do is a result of who we are in Christ. But the thief wants to flip it around. And get us looking at it backward. Paul, notice, he uses a word here at the end of this passage. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. See, another disguise of this joy thief is that of perfection. He gets us looking at ourselves and this pedestal that we'll put ourselves on. I have arrived. I don't need God for anything else. 
What could he possibly fix in my life? I'm blameless. What could he possibly do for me? I had the perfect family, the perfect home, the perfect neighborhood, the perfect job, the perfect spouse. We take the perfect vacations. I have the perfect social media account. Every picture I take is flawless. What do I need in my life? Or just the opposite is sometimes true. Paul said as far as perfection was concerned, he said, not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect. So if even the apostle Paul could not become perfect, then what hope is there for us? And you see, that becomes another disguise that this joy thief uses, and that's that of the partial payoff. If I can never achieve perfection, if I will never arrive at my goal, if I will never fully complete whatever this is that God has set out for me to do, then this must be as good as it gets. This must be it. So why keep pressing on? Why try to get better? Why try to do better? Why try to grow? Why try to follow him any further? I'm never going to get to the end. So you know what? It's easier right now just to take whatever happiness, whatever satisfaction, whatever little bit of joy or hope that I can find right now in the situation where I'm at, and that's it, and I'll just be content with that. My life's not what I want it to be, but it's not terrible either. So you know what? Right here, where I am, this, this is where I'll stay. Because I don't know if I take two more steps, if the bridge is going to fall out from under me or if I'll, if I'll make it any further. You know what? It's just not worth the risk. I'm okay here where I'm at, and I'll settle for being okay. And instead of knowing this life, this abundant life that God has called us to, and our walk with Him, we'll settle just for okay life. We'll settle just for not rocking the boat, for not making anything any worse. And we'll take that little sliver of joy, just that little taste of what was there for us. And we'll be God aren't with that. And what he's done is he's got our eyes off of Christ and on our circumstances instead. I remember we talked already about this idea of seeing our circumstances through the lens of Christ or seeing Christ through the lens of our circumstances. And this joy thief gets us to buy this idea of the partial payoff. It's better than none at all. And we start viewing Christ through those circumstances that we're in. He has our eyes off of him and our focus changed. So how do we thwart this joy thief? We, we know what he looks like. We know the tactics that he's going to use. So how do we thwart this person in our life who's trying to keep us from knowing the joy of following Christ completely? Well, Paul says, whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Paul says all of these are just things. And when I value them compared to knowing Christ and being in relationship with him, they're worthless. They're worthless. None of them are worth keeping. They're rubbish. You know what rubbish was good for in this day? To be thrown over the hill and burned. He says all of that, all of my pedigree, all of my performance, everything that I had ever attained in life, Compared to knowing Christ, to being known by Christ, it was rubbish. 
But he goes on, he says, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, there's his performance, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God based on faith. In other words, there's no performance standard for this kind of righteousness. He said, that's what I want. I don't want earned righteousness, which is never enough. I want imputed righteousness. That righteousness that's given to me when I place my faith in the work that Jesus Christ did on my behalf. When he took my sins, having no sin of his own, to a cross and died a death that should have been mine. To satisfy the penalty that my sin incurred. That righteousness, he says, is enough. Because no amount of earned righteousness from my performance would have ever measured up. Even though, by the law, I was blameless. That I may know Him, that's His end goal, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained. Or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Paul says, as Warren Risby phrased it, we have to find this divine dissatisfaction. We have to be dissatisfied. Paul says, for everything that I attain, for the life that I had, for all the admiration of the peers, and even those that were above me, so to speak, all the admiration that I had, even though my stock was rising, even though everyone knew my name, even though I had authority over people, none of that mattered. None of that mattered. There was a dissatisfaction that was there. Because when he looked at what the end goal was, And what that call of Christ was. And he looked at why Christ had laid hold of him. He said, nothing I had attained compared to that. I was dissatisfied. See, we can spend all of our time running around and looking for something that will satisfy us and bring us joy. But if we don't get our eyes on the one thing that can bring us joy, we'll never find it. Paul said, that's what I was doing. I was amassing everything that there was to amass. I was succeeding in every way there was to succeed. And yet when I looked at my life, I was dissatisfied. So the secret for us as believers, those who have, who have placed our eyes on Christ and come to Him for that righteousness that only He could give, that right standing, that relationship with God that only He can provide. When we get a taste of that, when we get a glimpse of that, we can't take our eyes off of it. When we look around at anything else, we need to be dissatisfied with anything that this world can offer. Because none of it is going to last. None of it conforms us to His image. None of it expands the kingdom. None of it helps us get to that one goal that we had here. We have to find that divine dissatisfaction. But he goes on. He says, this one thing I do. One thing that I do. Paul was focused. And we have to be focused. If we're going to thwart this joy thief, we have to keep our focus on that one thing. 
When we find dissatisfaction with everything else, we have to keep our focus on the one thing that brings joy, the one thing that brings fulfillment, the one thing that brings satisfaction, and that's doing those works that he created us to do in him. That's getting out of the way as he lives through us, as we see more and more of him in us. That's what we have to be focused on. We can't keep looking at the figures on our paycheck. We can't keep looking at the comfort of our family. We can't keep looking at where and how we can vacation. We can't keep looking at what we drive. We can't keep looking at what others say about us. We can't keep looking at our reputation here among our peers and our coworkers. We have to focus on one thing. What did Jesus teach? Seek first the kingdom. And then all these things will be added. Right? He has to be the focus. But Paul goes on, he says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. We have to be forgetful. And this word in the Bible is an interesting word, this word forget, because when we think of forget, we think of not being able to recall something, right? It's not so much the age that our brain doesn't work anymore, it's that with experience, there's just so much that we have to put in there, we've got to make room for other things, right? but we think of forgetting as something's gone and we can't, we can't recall it anymore. We can't access it anymore. We can't find it in there anymore. But when the Bible uses the word forget, that's not what it's talking about. Paul talks about forgetting what lay behind here. Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about God forgetting our sins and forgetting our transgressions, right? God doesn't forget. He's perfect. He doesn't exist in time. If he is in the past and the present and the future as if he were all right now, how could he forget the things that were behind? He can't forget. Just like Paul didn't really forget what was behind. Paul just gave us a list of who he used to be and all of his past accomplishments. He hasn't forgotten the way we think of forgetting. Paul didn't forget the suffering that he went through in his ministry. We looked just the other week in Corinthians where he gives us a lengthy, detailed list of all of the ways that he suffered in his ministry for the gospel. But no, what this word forget means is simply this. We choose to let what's happened in the past not continue to influence our future. That's what it means to forget. When Christ says he's forgotten our sins, and he's forgotten our transgressions, he doesn't mean that he can't recall them if he wants to. It means he's chosen not to, because that doesn't define who we are in him. And that's what Paul is saying here. I am focused on Christ, and I'm forgetting what's in the past. Do you think he didn't remember who he was before his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus? Do you think he'd forgotten that he was persecuting Christians and seeing them killed for their faith in Christ, the very faith that he now pressed as the one goal of his life? No, but he says, I can't let that define who I am. I can't let that define my life. That is not my identity. My identity is in the one on whom I am placing my focus. He determines who I am. He determines what I am. He determines my identity. And I'm choosing not to let that influence my future for him. We have to be forgetful. You've got things in your past. I've got things in my past. There are things in there that you don't want anyone to know. There are things in there, anytime you talk about, you always preference. Now, this was before I came to Christ, right? 
But those don't define who we are in Christ. He says we have to choose not to let whatever has happened to us in the past, whether it's things we've done or things that were done to us, that doesn't define who we are. It doesn't define our value. It doesn't define our worth in Christ. It doesn't define our productivity and our effectiveness for the kingdom of Christ. He says the only thing that defines that is the one that I'm focused on, and so I'm choosing not to let that influence my future. We've got to be forgetful. But he goes on to say, in reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've got to be determined. He says, I press on. This is an intense word. This is an emphatic word. It's a word, to use an athletic analogy, Paul, that's what the picture that Paul is painting here. This is the word that was used for the runner who's reaching, who's going for the finish line. It's this runner who's come around the final turn. He's in the home stretch and there is nothing left. There is nothing left in the tank. The, the quads are burning. The calves are burning. He barely catches breath. His mouth is dry. He doesn't know how he's going to make it. The tunnel vision is starting, but it's right there. And he's determined. And somehow he finds that other gear. Somehow he finds just that little bit. Somehow he crosses the finish line. Even if it's crawling across, he is going to get across the line. And Paul says, that is how we have to focus on him. That is how we have to forget what is behind because someone is always going to be reminding us of that. But he says, I'm determined to keep on going to the future to keep on going to what God is calling me to, to who he's calling me to be. I'm determined, regardless of what I've done in the past, regardless of what's going on around me, I'm determined to continue to better myself, to be that person. As he calls, I'll obey. As he wants to make a change, I'll change. No matter what the cost, I'm going toward that goal, that prize, that mark. I'm not going to let anything stop me. I'm not going to let anything entangle me. I'm not going to get preoccupied with the things that are around. I'm running a race. And the only thing I'm focused on is the prize. We have to be determined. But Paul goes on and he says, Let us therefore, as many are as perfect, have this attitude. Now he's, he's making a little play here with this word perfect. Because those of the false circumcision, those who were just like what Paul used to be before he came to Christ. See, they prided themselves on being blameless according to the law. And Paul's using their very own word, their very own term, to say, okay, for those of us who really are perfect, in other words, mature in Christ now, those who are perfect enough to realize that they're not perfect at all, those of us who realize just how imperfect we are according to the standard of Christ. Those of us who are perfect enough to realize just how far we still have to go. He says, let us therefore as many are as perfect have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Paul is saying this. We have to be responsible. We have to be responsible. Now get this. He's talking about spiritual maturity and not accomplishment. 
Do you realize it's possible for us to have the same commitment and the same dedication but be in two completely different levels as far as spiritual maturity is concerned? Does that make sense? To use another athletic analogy, let's think about basketball. I've got a kid over here who can barely dribble with one hand. I've got a kid over here the same age who's doing crossovers, goes between the legs, can lay up on either the right or the left. And I get him in a game situation. This kid's getting the ball picked from him all the time, and when he goes down for a layup, he always goes to the right side. He always makes a layup with the right hand, even if that side of the basket's guarded. This kid does the same thing. Who am I coming down on? It's this kid. This kid doesn't have the ability to do anything different yet. This kid has the ability to change up what he's doing, to recognize the defense and do something different. This is the kid I'm coming down on. Why? Because he's not living up to the ability that he has. And that's what Paul is telling us. If we don't want the thief to come in and steal the joy that is there from chasing after Christ, from doing what he's called us to do, then we have to live up to the ability. We have to live up to the spiritual maturity. We have to live up to the level and the understanding that we have attained. We can't look around and say, you know what, this person over here is slacking off and they're not doing this and they're not doing that. I don't know why God's expecting me to do it if he's not expecting them to do it. So you know what, I'm just going to lay back and I'm going to be at the same level they are. We've fallen for the trap. We've fallen for the disguise of the partial payoff. Paul's saying we can't do that. If God has called us to the next level, if God has honed this ability in our lives, if God has given us this understanding, if God has brought us through this experience, if our level of spiritual maturity is here, we have a responsibility to pursue Him at that level. Not to lay back where somebody else around us is. Because you know what? They might be pursuing Him 100% at the level they're at. And that's what God demands from us. 100%. If this kid's given 100% in the game and this kid's given 60% in the game, I'm coming down on this kid. God's saying, one of the ways that the thief comes in to steal our joy is by getting us to look around and compare ourselves to others, compare ourselves to how well other people are doing, compare our ability to other people's ability, and to say, you know what? There's no sense in me running out this far ahead if everybody else is lagging behind. Paul says we've got a responsibility. If you want to know joy, there's joy to be found sometimes when God makes you the tip of the spear. There's joy to be found sometimes that you don't realize in setting the bar for these other people to attain to. Twice in this passage, Paul talks about following him as he follows Christ and following the example of others who walk the same way as him. It's not a boast. It's not him bragging on how well he follows Christ. This is the same man who's saying, I haven't attained, I realize I haven't attained, but because I realize I haven't attained, I realize how much more determined I have to be. And you follow after me in my determination and my focus on the one thing that matters. And there's joy in being exactly where God calls us to be and doing exactly what he tells us to do. Even if we're way out in front. 
Because we become the encouragement for others to grow. And as they grow, the kingdom expands. And like we talked about last week, there's joy in seeing collectively the body of Christ succeed. I mean, think about it. Even when you walk, one foot has to go in front of the other, right? Somebody's got to be out front. Somebody's got to take the lead. He can't decide he doesn't want to go forward just because this one hadn't moved yet, right? You'd never get anywhere. And that's exactly what happens in the body of Christ. If we're all content to lay back and take the partial payoff, the kingdom never advances. And we never experience the fruit. We never get experience the joy that comes in seeing the gospel go out and the kingdom spread. Paul says we've got to be responsible with what we have. But then he goes on. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. There's one thing to focus on, right? We're, we're not citizens of this world. And do you see what he's doing here with the Philippian church? Remember, they're a colony. Their citizenship is not in the nation where they lived. They're a colony removed from the biggest part of the empire. They were people who understood that they had a citizenship to a kingdom where they weren't living. And he says it's the same spiritually. Yet they lived as Roman citizens. They flaunted their rights and privileges as Roman citizens. They could not wait to boast about their standing in the hierarchy of Roman politics and society. And he says it's the same with us. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. So we've got to focus on that. But he says it's not just on heaven but also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Not only are we looking toward home, but we're looking toward the one who's coming to take us home and to fit us for home and make us conform to the nature of home. Paul says we've got to be future-minded. If, if we don't want the thief to steal our joy, we can't get preoccupied with here and now and where we're at. Since we've got to be future-minded. We've got to be looking to where our citizenship really lay, and we've got to be anticipating the return of the one who's coming to take us there. Because one day, we're not going to be removed in the colony anymore. One day, we're going to be walking the streets of home. One day we're not going to be waiting on a word from the emperor. One day we're going to go right up to his throne. And he says, we've got to be future-minded. We've got to be looking toward that. So here again, we'll ask the question this week, where's your mind? Where's your mind? Are you letting the thief rob you of the joy that God has for you and following him and doing those things you were created to do to see the kingdom expand in his name? Are you letting him rob you of the joy of seeing you bring glory to him with your life and all that you do and every situation you find yourself in? Are we buying into some of these tactics that this thief uses? Are we getting caught up on our pedigree? Whether we think too much of ourselves or we don't think anything at all of ourselves. Or are we getting caught up with our performance? What we can achieve or what we've not achieved? Are we, are we getting caught up in this idea that I've already arrived. If I have a need, 
I'll look to him again. But right now, my focus is elsewhere. Or we've gotten apathetic. You know what? I don't know if I can follow him. I could never do it perfectly. So rather than even make the attempt, I'm just going to be happy with where I'm at right now. Life's not too bad. If anything changes, then maybe we'll have to change something. But right now, I'm, I'm content with just what I have and the happiness that I've got, and, and I'm okay. I don't need to follow anymore. Or maybe you're here today, and you don't know joy at all. Maybe your mind is not at all on the things of Christ because he's not the Lord of your life. Because you've never come to him and received that forgiveness. You've never come to him and received that restoration of a relationship with the Heavenly Father who created you for so much more than this life has to offer. The one who wants to see you live a life of satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy in knowing him and living the life that he created every part of your being to enjoy. The life that was perfect for who he made you that only comes from taking that first step of, of submitting to him, surrendering your life to him, and following him with your whole life. So maybe you bought into the lie somewhere along the line that this joy thief uses that you don't need that. It's not true. There are other ways. There are easier ways. Look at all these people around you who say they follow him. There's no joy in their life. Well, you know what? Some of these people who say they follow him aren't really following him at all. Some of them started following him, but you know what? They've had their joy stolen because they've fallen for these guises of the joy thief. You can't base what's possible with him on what you see in others. You've got to surrender to him yourself. Experience it for yourself. Follow him for yourself with your whole heart, focused, determined, future-minded. Just like anybody else here in this room. Maybe today you need to come and do that. We're going to pray here in just a moment. And as we dismiss, whatever business you need to do with God, you come and do today. I'll be here if you want to talk. This altar is open if you just want to come and pray. Maybe you need to grab a neighbor or somebody you're here with today and say, hey, just come pray with me. You come. Don't leave out of here letting the thief continue to steal the joy that you can have in following him. Don't leave out of here today complacent to not see the kingdom grow and expand in your life. However, that means you have to grow and expand. And certainly do not leave out of here today knowing that you could have a relationship with him. But not having it. There's no excuse. There's no reason. You don't have to get ready. There's nothing you have to fix. Paul was on his way to arrest Christians to see them executed for their faith in Christ when God grabbed hold of him and said, today is your day. He didn't tell him, go repent, go pay back money to the church, go make reparations to these families that you've destroyed. No, he said, today. So today is your day. You come, just as you are, and find joy, find meaning and purpose in your life. Start on that path of following him and letting him live through you to accomplish what he created you to accomplish. God, we are thankful.